Hello, everyone, and welcome to a slightly late Sons of Sequoia podcast for today. Today is Tuesday, April 20th, 2021. It's a beautiful day. We had snow yesterday. Now we have sunshine. How are you today, David? I'm doing okay. I uh, woke up late. I made some stew because there's like a foot of snow on the ground for some reason. Dave Fraser, our local weatherman, didn't tell us about it, but nonetheless, it happened. And uh, so I got stew in the crock pot. And I'm ready for the day. We're going to do a shorter episode today just because we got such a late start. Uh, We'll just talk about this New York Times op-ed, which we both have not yet read, correct? Correct. And uh, we'll evaluate Paul Krugman's stance. Do you know who Paul Krugman is? Yeah. He's a, uh, well, he's an opinion, he's a columnist in the New York Times, but he's also an uh, economist. Economist. Nobel Prize winning economist from Princeton. Yeah, he has and, a lot of good stuff to say, yeah. And I think they fall back on that um, as his bona fides because he's very liberal. Um, that might be one reason why he's writing for the New York Times. So keep that in mind. He's a liberal economist, and people sort of like to discount what he says because he's so liberal. But I think that two things can exist in the same place at the same time. You can be liberal, and you can be right. And I also think you can be a Nobel Prize winning economist from Princeton and be wrong. So you have to evaluate what people say uh, based upon the merits of what they're saying. You should you should listen to everybody, both sides, all sides. That's one thing that we haven't done in this uh, lately. Uh, but listen to all sides. Listen to both sides. Don't believe them. Uh, but uh, ask questions. Mm-hmm. And try to un- try to understand what they what they're saying, but ask questions and try to understand what's what's going on, not just one side, both sides and everybody's side. So yeah. th- this whether you're right or left or conservative or liberal or whatever, you try to understand people. Definitely, and um, I forgot, of course, to update the title of the stream. Let me see if I can update it on the fly. I screwed up. Let me grab it. Um, wow. Well, you want me to uh, start reading this while you're... Sure, yeah. Updating? Why don't you read it? Okay. What's the secret of Biden's success? The president's party is finally comfortable in its own skin. Let me enlarge this a little bit. Okay. Uh, Stop me if you've heard this one before. A new Democratic president has inherited a nation in crisis. His first major policy initiative is a short-term relief bill intended to lead the way out of that crisis. He follows that bill with proposals to address longer-term problems and, if possible, to change American society for the better. His party holds majorities in the House and the Senate. But both of his initiatives face short, uh, scorched earth opposition from Republicans. I could describe, I could be describing the early months of either the Obama administration or the Biden administration. But there's one huge difference between them. Even though Barack, Barack Obama began his presidency with high personal approval ratings, his policies never had strong public support. Public approval for Bi- Joe Biden's policies, by contrast, is almost surreally high. Why? 
to see. Are you with me there on the right? Okay. Um, to see what I'm talking about, compare polling on the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, with polling on Biden's American Jobs Plan. The ACA famously had negative net approval throughout the Obama years. Its image didn't improve until the Trump administration tried to kill it. And even then it faced overwhelming disapproval from Republican voters. By contrast, Americans approve of the jobs plan by huge margins while and while elected Republicans are dead set against Biden's proposal, Republican voters are net supported. Uh, what's the secret of Biden's success? Part of the answer surely is identity politics. Let's be blunt here. The modern version of, quote, only Nixon could go to China, end quote, maybe, quote, only, only an old white guy can sell a new deal, end quote. Another factor working in Biden's favor is the closing of professional Republicans' minds. Even before conspiracy theories took control, Republican politics were living in a mental bubble. In many ways, the modern GOP is more like a cult than a normal political party. And at this point, Republicans seem so deep in the cult that they've forgotten how to talk to outsiders. When they denounce every progressive idea as socialism, declare every center-left politician a Marxist, rant about job creators, and insist on calling their rival the Democrat Party, they're talking to themselves and persuading nobody. If you want to see Republican tone deafness in action, look at Senator Marsha Blackburn's recent attack on the jobs plan. It's not really about infrastructure, she proclaimed. Why? It would spend hundreds of billions on elder care. And she apparently imagined that voters would see helping the elderly as a bad thing. Biden then benefits from having the non-threatening persona in an opposition that has forgotten how to make persuasive apology arguments. But the popularity of Bidenomics also reflects the effectiveness of a party that is far more comfortable in its own skin than it was a dozen years ago. Unlike Republicans, Democrats are members of a normal political party, basically a mildly center-left party that looks a lot like its counterparts across the free world. In the past, however, Democrats seemed afraid to embrace this identity. One striking thing about Obama years in retrospect was a, a difference, a deference uh, to Democrats, of Democrats to people who didn't share their goals. The Obama administration deferred to bankers who warned that anything populist sounding would undermine confidence and to deficit scolds demanding fiscal austerity. It wasted months on a doomed effort to get Republican support for health reform. And along with this deference went diffidence, a reluctance to do simple, popular things like giving people money and taxing corporations. Instead, the Obama team tended to favor subtle policies that most Americans didn't even notice. Now the deference is gone. Wall Street clearly has a lot less influence this time around. Biden's economic advisors evidently believe that if you build a better economy, confidence will take care of itself. The obsession with bipartisanship is almost gone. 
replaced with a realistic appreciation of Republican bad faith, which has also made the new administration uninterested in GOP talking points. And the old diffidence has evaporated. Biden isn't just going big. He's going obvious with highly visible policies rather than behavioral nudges. Furthermore, those forthright policies involve doing popular things. For example, voters have consistently told pollsters that corporations pay too little in taxes. Biden's team uh, buoyed up uh, Trump tax cuts failure is uh, willing to give the public what it wants. So Biden's 2021 isn't playing uh, anything like Obama's 2009, and Republicans don't seem to know what hit them. Of course, polls may change. Public support for the Obama stimulus, never very strong, plunged in the face of a sluggish economic recovery. Voters, voters might sour on biodynamics, too, if the economic disappoints. But all indications are that we're heading for an economic boom with GDP growing as it's at its fastest rate since 1984. If that happens, Biden's policies might, e might get even more popular than they are now. How all of this will translate into votes remains to be seen. But early indications are that Biden has achieved what Obama never did, finding a way to make progressive policies truly popular. Okay, let's discuss. Let's discuss. Go what, for it, David. What's your initial reaction? Uh, well, my initial reaction is, yeah, he's observing. He's making good, making arguments. Uh, but from uh, my feeling, I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not in political science or uh, politics, but my feeling was his arguments is from a perspective uh, not necessarily from the facts. He's using the facts to support his perspective, which is not wrong. Uh, but uh, the, there's no, there was no two sides to this. It was saying this is what they're doing wrong. Here's what they're doing right. This kind of thing. Uh, yeah, I see. Uh, like Marsha Blackburn being outraged that the infrastructure bill will help elderly people, mm -hmm. um, and just sort of not really understanding that if you're a Republican, a huge swath of your voter base is elderly people. And yeah, sure, the people that give you money might be captains of industry or corporate interests, but the people that push you past the post at the ballot box are old people. Old people are Republican. So you can't just sort of denigrate spending on elder care, spending on the elderly, because that's your, that's your constituency in a large respect. It reminds me of uh, Obama, I'm not Obama, Edison versus Tesla. So Edison oh. felt like DC power would be the future. And Tesla said, no, alternating current AC power, we're gonna have power plants, we're gonna run lines to people's houses, we're gonna have power generation facilities. And Edison said, no, AC power is too dangerous. And he had people come out to New Jersey, they gathered in this park, and he's like, this, let me demonstrate the danger of AC power and why we need huge batteries in the home and we need homes to run off of DC power. And then he took an alternating current generator and he hooked it up to an elephant and he electrocuted it to death. And instead of people being afraid of the dangers of AC power, they were afraid of the sociopathy of Thomas Edison. 
<laughs> he made himself look like a monster. He just like killed an elephant in cold blood in front of a crowd of people. Um, so I think that adherence to an ideology will cause you to stake out positions that make you sort of look cold and callous. And Biden's saying, well, why don't we just push policies that help people, that help voters? And surprisingly enough, like you see here in this line, American approve of the jobs plan. While elected Republicans are dead set against Biden's proposal, Republican voters support it. Because people aren't so far gone that if you tell them that something's going to benefit them and they can sort of see, they can draw a line to, oh, this policy will benefit me and the old policy clearly doesn't, they can say, okay, yeah, I'm in favor of that. They're not so dumb that they can't make that that leap, that logical leap. Mm -hmm. um, well, I, that's very true. And I think one thing we've seen these last four years with Trump, uh, Trump was very good at saying, this is good for you. This is good for you. Why? Because it is. Because it is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Make America great again. How? By making it great, by voting on me. You know. But the, the point is that, that we've learned a lot about uh, uh, from, from the last four years. With Trump, we learned a lot about uh, how you tell people what they want to hear. And, and also the people matter. The people matter. And so a lot of times uh, politicians will uh, argue technical points and the economists and politicians with technical points. And look, here's this is why this is going to work. And, and it's very academic and theoretical. And uh, but then you got to come to the people. Mm -hmm. and get their support. I think a lot of times uh, people miss that. Yeah, People miss that all over the place. And it's, it's, a, it's about what do the people understand, what they believe in, and what's believable. Yeah. Well, like the, uh, the stimulus for the last CARES Act or whatever they called it, the last coronavirus stimulus, Republicans were upset because there were provisions in the bill that cut child poverty in half. And they said, this is supposed to be coronavirus. This isn't supposed to be child poverty. It's like, are you saying that cutting child poverty in half is a bad thing? And the interesting thing is that that was always within the power of the federal government. But there was also this argument that, you know, Jeff Bezos is worth $180 billion. But if we cut his taxes, he will be worth $250 billion. And that'll be good for the children that don't have food to eat for some reason. And we tried that method and it doesn't really work that way. And it has consistently not worked that way. And I think that people are saying, oh, you're going to, to sort of focus on the areas where the money's needed and not just trust Jeff Bezos to give some of his billions to, to the people. The federal government will do it. They'll take it from Jeff Bezos and give it to the people. Um, that sort of thing. And you can call it socialism if you want, but I think that uh, when the people get food support, food assistance, when they get financial assistance, when they are more capable of buying a house and sort of living a normal life with normal means, they see that as a good thing, regardless of their party. That's right. Yeah, and I think a lot of times people talk about socialism, you know, uh, they take the word socialism and they just move it 
into a category where everything about that is bad. Mm-hmm. And if they think and, socialism uh, is bad, I would suggest don't send your kids to a public school. And don't drive on an interstate highway. Yeah. Um, I mean, a lot of farmers are uh, Republicans. But I would say for them, if they really fear socialism, do not accept any agricultural subsidies from the federal government. Right. And if they went down that path, so many of them would go out of business. And it's like, yeah, but you know what? Not being socialist is more important than you staying in business, right? I mean, that's how you vote. Why isn't that how you act? I had a friend and uh, his dad was a libertarian. And he said, yeah, it's crazy because my dad is working for the state of Colorado. My sister's working for Jefferson County and I'm working for a city. And, uh, And he's a libertarian. And so we all have government jobs. And he's a libertarian. And I said, yeah, no, if you really believe in your politics, why don't you quit your job? <laughs> That's true. Um, and I, there again, David, uh, hey, there again, again and again and again, we come back to the great philosopher of the 20th century, Yogi Berra. Mm-hmm. Now, there's no difference in, in theory. There's no difference between theory and practice. In practice, there is. They can have these ideals, but when it comes down to actually doing something, they're going to do what's right for them. Yeah, and if the the policies that Biden passes have a net positive benefit on people's lives, they'll forgive him for being a Democrat. That's right. And I think that that's what he's betting on. And he's also saying, well, Trump proved you don't need to, to feign bipartisan support. You don't need to get support from the other party. He, he rammed everything down our throats for four years. And we ended up in dire economic straits with a raging pandemic. It's like, so now that we have control of both houses and the presidency, let's do the same thing. And the interesting thing will be, let's make the people accept what we do because it's a good thing to do, not because it's a democratic policy. That's sort of the, the gambit that they're running. I kind of agree with that, too. And I uh, I don't know if this applies, but I remember back in the 60s that uh, people wanted was asking for money to support the Democratic Party because they were they were really spiraling down and, uh, and the Republican Party is very strong. Mm-hmm. Well, well, now we see almost it's changing and dem and the republicans trying to pr- protect themselves uh from spiraling down and uh and and the democratic and so from from those early years when the, the democratic party was was having trouble uh, i i firmly i guess from my all, all my years firmly believe in a two-party system whether you agree with the other party or not uh somehow you got to have debate now, sometime if a party shouldn't be there, replace it with another party or something. But there should be debate back and forth. Uh, you should always have someone questioning everything you're doing. Uh, maybe I'm not saying it right politically, uh, but I think uh, uh, debate, questioning, and uh, devil's advocates, uh, they could be right, they could be wrong. But, but think about more than one side. 
every time. Yeah, I mean, I think that you're just conditioned, I don't know, that two-party system is better than a one-party system. I would agree with that. But I think it's the, the structure of government here, and especially, this is the thing, first past the post voting. So if you get 51%, you become the guy or the gal in that district. It, what it leads to, and with gerrymandering, it leads to people staking out positions as far to the extreme as possible. Because you're going to win your district. So what you get is congresswomen and men and senators that are as ideologically opposed as possible instead of people in the middle. Because you can't win if you're in the middle. Because your district is 80% Republican. So if you're a centrist, um, you're going to get outflanked by the person on the far left or the far right. And they'll win the primary. So you have more extreme party views. I think if you had a smarter system, like a rank order voting system or a multi-party system, you might have a variety of different views represented. And, you know, a lot of times, you take like a place like Michigan. Do you remember when Flint, Michigan, had the water crisis? Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like if you were the congressperson for that area, you could be a one-issue candidate. Like, how do you feel about immigration? It's like, I feel like in Flint, Michigan, immigration is less of an important issue than the fact that the water coming out of our taps is not potable. Like, that is the one thing we need to fix. Like, we need to federal help to do that. We need to fix our reservoirs. We need to fix our water delivery system. We need to fix our water purification plants. And we need federal money to do that because the state's not offering it. Uh, You could be a one-issue candidate. And the thing is, that's local leadership, you know? But I don't think that anyone emerged like that. I, I'm not sure. I think Flint is probably a Democratic district. They probably ran on Democratic talking points. They had to toe the Democratic Party line. So their people are less well-served because of a two-party system than they would be if they weren't married to, you know, carrying forward the party's platform. Yeah, point well taken. Because I do feel like running water access to electricity and heat. I know last night it was 22 degrees outside and the snow was raging. And I slept like a baby in my house because I have a furnace and it was 68 degrees. And it's like, some people aren't that lucky. That's right. And if there's people struggling with energy or food insecurity or or water insecurity, like, those are the problems that require immediate attention. Mm-hmm. And the, the sad thing is that we're not at 100% in America. We're not at 100% of the populace with food security. or energy. I mean, so when you talk about Dr. Seuss, that's trying to rile up a small percentage of the population that watches cable news. But really, the real issues are different. And I think that a lot of the policies that Paul Krugman is talking about in this article, to get back to the article, is looking at those things that will fundamentally change the lives that are obvious. That's what he's not just going big. He's going obvious. If you focus on some of those things, childhood poverty, um, elder care, uh, big issues that will immediately affect people's lives that are necessary, people are going to like them. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, 
how do you think it's going to play out? You've just started. Uh, how do you think this is going to play out the next next the first year of his uh, presidency? I don't know because the there's going to be a boomerang effect. I think when people get vaccinated, I think people will want to travel. They'll want to spend money, and we'll see revenues come back. Uh, perhaps to pre-pandemic levels, perhaps near pre-pandemic levels in a lot of the worst hit industries. Now, uh, but I, I think like you've said this before, there's a fundamental change in people's behaviors that's occurred as a result of the last 13, 14 months. Mm-hmm. Um, because I see industries that are relatively large industries, like let's say commercial real estate, they just got a year to prove you don't need a giant skyscraper downtown. You know, if your workers are knowledge workers and the product of their labor are Excel spreadsheets or, you know, decisions made in face-to-face meetings, those face-to-face meetings can be done on a computer like we're doing right now. And so you're going to see large parts of the economy that had value sort of intrinsically have less value because their necessity has been called into question over this last year. And so I think it's going to be interesting to see how things recover. Mm-hmm. Because I do think a lot of the, the fact that the stock market's doing well, well, a lot of that is there was a shift from the traditional way of doing business into the new way of doing business, and business continued. Uh, so where there was loss here, there was gain here. And there's, you know, net equivalency in terms of the stock market. You know, of course, people are suffering. But now when the pandemic ends, it's not going to be gangbusters stay high and the stuff that lost come back to where it was. I think that there's going it's a zero sum game to some extent. How do you feel? What do you feel the upshot of these policies will be and the overall effect in the economy? Well, I well, first of all. Uh, you mentioned uh, the the recovery uh, and uh, people's behavior. First of all, let me address that. Uh, I think what happened uh, when the pandemic hit, there was a shock wave that went through, like, oh no, why do we do this? And so the shock of trying being being quarantined or having people starting to die around you and and people almost everyone has someone that they know of that died mm-hmm. uh, either a relative or a friend or or an acquaintance and so it, it affects everybody and so how do you deal with that how do you deal with uh having uh doing business or doing things by by uh, through the internet virtually instead of in person it's changing how we interact so that's 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 a big change this last, as you say, 13, 14, 50 months. Um, but now the shift, in other words, how do we deal with that? Well, we've dealt with it. But now the shift is now that uh, we've had we're here, we were here. Now we're here. Now the question is, how is that? Re- how is that recovery going to happen? You know, how will the recovery progress? Uh, we, it's not just going to it's it's not a, a it, it's not a elastic type of a uh, response here. It's not going to right back where it was. Mm-hmm. It's going to take a different path. What is that path? How how will that happen? And that's not unrelated to Biden's policies. No. 
because the people, when they start coming back, and like you said, they're going to want to travel because they're antsy about being home and can't do this, they can't do that. Americans are very independent, and that's why we make things happen. But then how is that going to be played out with these policies coming top down from the federal government? Mm -hmm. How is that going to affect state policies? And the state policies are going to start opening things up early. Uh, and so how will the federal government with Biden's policies support the state policies uh, in opening up? And when that open starts opening up, how will people respond to that? Mm -hmm. And so people are going to responding to for their freedom, but they're not going to back to going. They're not going to go back to where they were. Uh, they're going to maybe be a little bit more cautious about uh, is this some people are going to go back. Some people want to go back to where it was. Mm hmm. Well, the way it was, we were vulnerable to a pandemic. So they'll want to go back. This, the the, the uh, businesses and the industry are part of our economic uh, society. They're go they'll want to go back, but not to where they're they're vulnerable like they were before. They want to go back to where they're get, they can have uh, mitigating mitigating type type uh, uh, policies and structures in place to where. If something does happen, they can be agile to respond uh, to other uh, shocks in the in the future mm -hmm. on the on the economy, on a society, etc. And people are not going to be that. That the, the I guess the uh, people are, are not people and businesses are two different things. Put it yes. that way. And and the people are going to be more reactive. And uh, businesses uh, hopefully. Uh, that are going to that are going to last are going to be more proactive in planning for the future, and uh, and how that plan is going to be technology and the internet because we've seen how the internet can really impact uh, business, mm -hmm. and that that interaction with with the, with the technology and business will influence how people are going to be reacting to things, and so they're not unrelated. Uh, but also one does, well, I think business will drive a lot of how people are going to start reacting. So that's, that's a long answer, but uh, I, see a, I see the future very different than the past. And look, look what we have floating around. I mean, we had a podcast on the NFTs, the non-fungible uh, tech tokens. Mm -hmm. That was unthought of 50 years ago that's or right. even 20 or 10 years ago or five years ago. So why did that happen? It's not te it, technology allowed it, but that's not what's going on. It's people's behavior. Mm -hmm. The, the, the non-fungible tokens, that, that's, that's behavior. And so it's fascinating. And so that be those kinds of so sociological and psychological behavior, I think it's going to start morphing and in, in, into different type of recovery uh, in our in our uh, uh, society. I think that's one thing. That's domestic society. I think the other thing is going to be, be uh, uh, global societies. I think the way we interact with other countries is going to be changing. The way the, the federal government reacts with the state government is one thing, and how the state government reacts with municipalities internally, that's one thing. But how the federal government is going to react internationally it's not going to be the same as before because the last four years were pulled out. Of, we can start talking about international politics, right, David? Yeah, but I think that that's not the uh, the thrust of this article is his domestic policies. 
It you know? is. It is. But the what I, what I'm getting at, what I was trying to, what I was uh, implying, is that it's true. But why do these domestic policies? Why are they taking hold? Because what has happened in the past, what's happening today, that's why they're taking hold. Well, that same impetus, and the same same uh, forces that are making this happen, are also global. Yeah, that's all I'm saying. I think that's though, that's that's a that's a discussion for another time. Yeah, I think also though it's like, uh, you know, the pandemic hit and the Trump administration was like, what tax cut can we pass? Uh, you know, on the wealth, well, can we cut the wealthiest Americans' taxes somehow to make this better? And the answer was no. And <laughs> so Biden gets into power, and it's like, okay, well. How do we ameliorate the problems of, you know, food insecurity, of energy insecurity? It's like we're going to need basically a new deal. That's what he's saying in the first paragraph. Only an old, only an old white guy could propose a new deal. Uh, Obama couldn't do it because he's a radical socialist. But this guy, he's been a moderate his whole life, and he's saying, "Listen, I'm 78 years old. I'm white. You can trust me." We're going to beef up social programs, maybe not to the level that they were under Lyndon Johnson, but certainly more than. And, you know, in Congress, it's like, no, you do not uh, tax the rich and sort of ensure a social safety net. You give the rich the benefits of any gains in the economy and hope that they take care of the poor. And that's just two different. I think that people know that Amazon is not going to take care of them. So when the government says, oh, here's a $1,400 check, oh, here's food stamps, oh, here's enhanced unemployment benefits, people say, okay, well, that's more real than Jeff Bezos wanting to build a rocket ship to Mars. That helps me more. Uh, Food stamps so I can buy potatoes helps me more than Jeff Bezos putting reverse thrusters on his rocket ship that he's building to Mars. (laughs) Let me ask you a question, David. Mm-hmm. Is it correct to uh, frame this, what's happening with Biden, is moving from uh, a, a, a view on an economic uh, impacts of uh, federal decisions to Biden's impacts on the people, social impacts, going, going from economics to what the people need? I, I think so. I, well, I think that one of the biggest problems for the Republicans is that their constituency is very different from their base. So the people that they need for them to win elections are not the people whose interests they represent once they're elected. That's why you hear so much issue about uh, tr- transsexuals' bathrooms or Dr. Seuss, that sort of gets people enraged that they vote Republican. But the thing is, the the economic policies that will be introduced will be almost across the board, not in the favor of the people that got enraged about the transsexuals in the bathrooms. Um, And so, you know, what does government do? Well, the government didn't take action on transsexual bathrooms during Trump's administration. That was... Uh, that was just something to get the people riled up. What they did was they passed huge tax cuts for the wealthiest Americans because that's their constituency. They may not be their base, 
but that's their constituency. That's who they're ruling for. And so that disconnect, sometimes at some point you got to pay the piper, and these people will say, well, I voted Republican, but when a Democrat gets in office, all sorts of policies get enacted that actually favor me. Like, maybe I should reevaluate. I mean, you won't because I think it's so dogmatic these days. It's like, you know, oh, everyone at the Presbyterian Church looks like they're having a lot of fun at the potluck, and I'm here... uh, at the Baptist church, getting my fingers wrapped by the, I don't know, the, the Catholic school, getting my fingers wrapped. Like, I wish I could be a Presbyterian, but you are not allowed to be because it's more orthodoxy now than, than actual policy. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's been that way. Well, it's always been that way, but I think it's been accelerated. Uh, very much accelerated the last four years to where us and them, us mm-hmm. and them, uh, you know, the A, the A group and the B group and the C group, and you're in that group. You're not a person anymore. You're a label. Mm-hmm. And I don't. I, that's that's pretty much where we've where we've gone. And uh, Democrat is a label. Yeah. It's not. It's not a person. Liberal. It's not. The left. The label. right. I, I, I don't. Uh, I know that a lot of people use that, but when someone is on the right. And I I just used it myself. If someone's a Republican and they say, what's the deal with this? And they say, well, the deal is that the left wants this. It's like, I immediately stop listening to them. And and if someone asks a Democrat, well, what's the deal with this? Well, the deal is that the right, it's like, it's not a homogenous group. Um, Like I said, there's a difference between a Republican constituency and a Republican base. And I think what's infuriating, I think for a lot of political scholars is that the Republican base is very out of, very not much not benefited by Republican policy. And the work unit of a politician is policy. And I think what's happened, like you said, with these NFTs, they have real value. You can make millions of dollars off of NFTs. Well, the work unit should be dollars, not, you know, imaginary crypto coins. Well, I think that the politicians these days have turned a work unit into outrage. You know, you turn outrage into action and like, but outrage isn't policy and the policy that does get enacted doesn't benefit you. So why are you voting for this? It's like, because outrage has become the new currency. Uh, And it's like, well, you know, it's better currency than outrage us dollars or, (laughs) you know, like things that benefit you programs in your community that benefit you or um, so it's just, it's fascinating to me to see, that sort of disconnect happen. But what's fascinating, David, is outrage has worked. Mm-hmm. It has worked for the last four years, and it ha- was accelerated. It was promoted. It grew uh, to the point where January sixth they stormed the Capitol. So it's not it's it's not just a philosophical entity. It's it's something that's real. Mm-hmm. Something that's very very real. And it's kind of sad, kind of sad. Yeah, I don't like labels uh, because you, 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 this is the left, this is right, this is Democrat. You know, you have a label and then you can denigrate the label. Like when you say you the, re- the Republicans or the right, even if you say the Republicans, which is more accurate than the right, are you talking about the average Republican voter or are you talking about a Republican congressperson? Because as we see in the article... Elected Republicans are dead set against policies that the voters support. So when you say the right wants this, 
It's like, are you talking about the right in terms of the Koch brothers? I know one of the Koch brothers died. You know, these these captains of industry that are sort of channeling funding into the Republican Party? Are you talking about members of the rank and file in the Republican Party itself that are legislators? Are you talking about Republican vote? Those are three different and distinct subsets of people. And it's the same on the left. We said the left wants a culture war that, you know, everybody's racist. And it's like, that may be some people on the left that sort of promote that agenda. But some people on the left, like Bernie, they want uh, strong labor unions. They want higher taxation of corporations and to use those, you know, revenues to go back to the people. And it's like, that's not a race issue for him. It's a fundamental how he views the administration of government. So, I mean, there's different factions within each each party. So when you when you use a label, then you can start talking about the label. And then once you put them in that, once you put a label on someone, You've, you've identified that person with all that description on your label. Mm-hmm. You can always find someone, you, like, you, like, you, like you were describing, David, very, very well. You create a label, you put someone in there. Well, the label already has all of these descriptions. All those are tacked, tacked onto this person, which may not be true. It's almost like true. when you say the left wants this or the right wants this, the next thing out of your mouth is going to be a straw man argument. Straw man argument. That's right. And and the, and uh, that's why labels are so dangerous when they start saying, "Well, what are you? What are you?" Mm-hmm. It says, "I'm a person. Yeah, I'm a, you know, I'm a person that that loves America, and I'll do what I think is right, no matter what it is." And uh, it, it's kind of sad that uh, that uh, people can capitalize on on that type of dangerous dangerous politics but uh but it works yeah it it has worked and who knows it might work in the future and i think anyway it's it's scary yeah i think the problem is you know a popularity contest to determine leadership positions demonstrating your popularity in a nine-month campaign is different than running a a country (laughs) that's very true the skills necessary for one don't necessarily translate to the other does not do not translate to another and that's why i think a lot of times people from the outside look at the united states and say how does that work mm-hmm. how in the world does that work that does not make sense that does not make sense but then uh the reason our country is great as will rogers said it's in spite of the government mm-hmm. it's because of the people uh the people will say wait a minute they'll stand up and say wait a minute and so, so the reason that we sometimes have trouble with people, everyone not wearing the mask because they're so independent, not getting vaccinated because because they want to be macho. They don't think getting vaccinated is a macho. They're afraid. And some people, they're afraid. Yeah. They're afraid. Uh, they're individualistic. But it's the same reason why we are a great country. Yeah. Because <laughs> they, they will do what's right. You know, they may do what's wrong, but they'll do what's right. Again, uh, it's not it's not plus or minus. It's 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 a spectrum. Uh, but we do need collective action on epidemiologic mitigation 
And that's uh, the we thing get, is, if everyone gets vaccinated, you know why there's no smallpox in America? Because everybody got vaccinated. It's like, um, and it's like these vaccine passports is a dangerous threat to freedom. It's like, oh, like the vaccine passports that I needed when I was five years old to attend kindergarten. I, I needed to be vaccinated for measles, mumps, and rubella. I needed, you know, my booster shots. And the public schools required those. You know, you guys had to submit to the public school that I went to evidence that I'd been vaccinated. That's right. And it's like vaccine passports. That was my passport into school. A lot of times traveling. If you want to travel to a country, you do need to get vaccinated against malaria or whatever. You know, if you're traveling to an area where that's prevalent. And it's like this has been a thing. This has been a thing for 50 years. And you're going to add one thing to it. Oh, there's a new virus out. So we're going to add that to the, the requirements. Taking away our freedoms. Like, I will gladly have to prove that I've been vaccinated against measles, mumps, and rubella to go to public school. But you add one thing to that. No. It's fascinating, don't you think? Taking away our freedom. It's socialism. Socialism. They're forcing us, they're forcing us to do something. No, no. It's really, yeah. It's, uh, no, it's it's very interesting. And so you think about the, the group group uh, psychology of this. It's just it's just very interesting. Mm-hmm. And people uh, sometimes think not for themselves. Don't think about the facts. They think about what's being told. Mm-hmm. And even intelligent people, too, very intelligent people, they'll, they're given an argument and they'll believe the argument without really questioning it. Well, we saw, we watched something off off stream, but uh, the Jimmy Kimmel where they had the Dr. Fauci and he's saying, these people, they want the restrictions removed from their businesses, but they refuse to get vaccinated. And it doesn't make sense. And I think I've, t- I've made this argument before. The pandemic starts, if you're a small business owner, they shut down your business. And so from that point on, it's like, well, the first thing they told me to do is shut down my business. So I am going to oppose anything else they tell me to do. Well, now you should wear a mask. No. Now you should get vaccinated. No. You told me to shut down my business. You're the bad guy. So it's difficult to sort of convince someone, well, if you wear a mask, you can open up your business. No. I'm gonna, I don't want to wear a mask. I'm not going to wear a mask in my business. It's like, well, if you get vaccinated, you can open your business safe. No, I'm not going to get vaccinated. You told me to shut down my business. So, But you become the bad guy and then anything – it's like fruit from the spoiled tree. Anything else you suggest – to mitigate the spread of the disease doesn't work because shutting down my business didn't work either. And you were the one that, that made one, me do that. That one act made made that person label them as bad. I, I, do you think there's something to that? Absolutely. 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 They, it's, it's all emotion. Mm-hmm. It's all emotion and not logic. You know, it says, oh, well, the, even uh, someone who does make a bad decision Okay, just just philosophically, hypothetically, somebody even who does make a bad decision. Well, does that mean every decision they make after that is going to be bad? No, they may even see the error of their ways. Oh, no, that's not right. Let me do this. Well, if you label them as bad, then even a good decision would be bad to you. And and you won't accept it because it would have been good for you. That's exactly what we're seeing, mm-hmm. what, we, what we've been seeing. It's it's good point, David. Very good point. It's fruit from the spoiled tree. And I, you know what? I don't think we're going to solve this problem. So I think I'll start. Cue up the music, okay? 
We got about yeah, we've done enough. We got about two I minutes think. to wrap this up. So, my question is, Joe Biden, what's the secret of his success? That's the article we looked at. I think the secret of his success is that there was a lot to do, and nobody was doing it. And so <laughs> he came in, and it would be difficult to do too little because there was so much to do. So he's chosen to do the obvious things, and people are like, oh, wow, there's agency and efficiency and effectiveness in government again. It may not be the exact policy I would advocate, but I prefer that over grievance. Uh, I think that's that's the secret to his success as far as I'm concerned. Well, I think what's the secret of Biden's success is that uh, uh, the story of history is change. Story of politics is change. Story of America is change. Whatever you have is going to be changing. And so uh, Biden is changing from Trump. The question is, who's going to change from Biden? Is it going to be better? Or is it going to be worse? So I think Americans have to wake up and be informed uh, and, and care and care. So you got the music playing, David? It's playing. Okay. Hey, let's let's close this out, okay? Okay. It was a good discussion. Thank you for, for your comments, David. They were excellent. But, you know, I think Senza Sequoia wants to say uh, keep on talking, but listen more than you talk. And try to understand what the other person is saying. We'll see you next time. Goodbye.